Thank you for choosing OECD Podcast. Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. 2018 was an uncertain year for the global economy. Okay, there was no recession to speak of, but consumer and business confidence is fragile, to say the least. In fact, many economists, including at the OECD, have revised down their economic forecasts, blaming tensions over world trade in particular. The question everyone is asking is, could things get worse in 2019? Is the world economy leaving dangerously, as one newspaper put it? Or, just as spring follows winter, will the clouds soon lift? I'm Rory Clark, and to help me pick through some of these issues, I'm joined by Laurence Boone, who is the OECD's chief economist. Laurence, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the numbers, shall we? Um, Economic growth is set to average around 3.5% roughly over the next two years, year or two. That's according to the latest OECD economic outlook, which you issued in November. That's not that bad, is it? It's not that bad. Uh, Growth has probably peaked and is now slowing down, and that's normal at this stage of the cycle. Jobs are high, so we have a good situation. But there are risks, and these risks mostly come from the way policy is shaped and designed, Uh, namely trade tension. You also have financial tightening, which has spillover on emerging markets. And there are a lot of political risks out there, Brexit and some others in Europe. So what we are concerned about is how to get the best policy to minimize the possibility that risk materialize. Are there any other signs out there apart from just policy uh, indicators, anything happening out there that is not performing like you'd like it to? Well, take trade, for example. Well, so we've been following the traffic uh, across ports of container because those represent about 80% of the volume of trade in goods. So that's a super powerful indicator. And when it was growing at a rate of 6% in 2017, it's now only growing at 2%. That's a very strong indication that the trade tension are actually taking a toll on trade. And when we look more on the aggregate, we estimate that trade tensions have already shaved off about 0.1 to 0.2 percentage points of global GDP growth. And looking ahead, you know, all this uncertainty about the discussion on trade, they're holding off firms' investment plan, and that's holding off employment and new hire. So what we are saying, and in particular in the November economic outlook, is policymakers should get back to the negotiation table, address the trade issues, and reduce uncertainty so that investment and employment can pick up again. What about jobs? Uh, Many people would say jobs are the real test of economic performance. How is that performing? Well, on the job front, it's like on growth at the OECD wide level. We are actually doing great. Employment is very high. Unemployment is at record low in the US. It's gone back to crisis level, pre-crisis level in Europe. Um, So the picture looks good. But then, you know, we are never happy with a global aggregate picture. We look into the details. And when you look into the details, what we are seeing is, for example, youth unemployment is still too high. 
Um, some older workers are still not back in the labor force. And there are pockets of um, poverty, and we also see wage growth, which is still a bit sluggish. So we think there's more to do on this front. Again, in the OCD outlook, you underlined that if there is a decline, then the challenge is to engineer a soft landing. That's easier said than done, isn't it? Yeah, somebody said that soft landing is a term created by economists, but it doesn't really exist in practice. I think it's probably an economist way of talking, but what we are trying to say is we have passed the peak of the recovery and monetary and fiscal policy, which had supported the recovery, are now normalizing. And this is always challenging, and it's especially the case because central banks have been super creative to help lift the world out of what could have been a massive depression. So now they also have to be super creative to normalize things. And these are always challenging times. So if we get back to what I was saying before, we don't need additional risk like politics or threat tension when we're trying to actually ensure that growth lands on a sustainable and long-lasting pathway. You wrote about this in the Financial Times before, in December, uh, the need for cooperation. How important is that? And also, how much room do policymakers have? Uh, have they not spent all their efforts in solving the crisis? So there are two questions in your questions. One is the need for cooperation, and the other is margin for manoeuvre. Um, and they're both intertwined. Margin for manoeuvre are still low. Take interest rates, right? They're below zero in Europe. Um, they're still below 2% in the US in the short term. Take fiscal policy. It's true that we have elevated debt. So it looks like, are we trapped? Well, what we're saying is, no, we're not trapped. Uh, we're not trapped if we can actually look at those things and prepare ahead Uh, in case the slowdown is faster or larger than what we expect. And for that, we need not only to expand our toolbox, but also to make sure that we talk to each other so that everybody acts in the same direction. There are two things. One is um, what we know is that when fiscal authorities act together, like they did in 2009, so that's not science fiction, then the impact of the fiscal stimulus is much higher than when they act individually in their own corner and not in the same direction. So fiscal stimulus would be what, for example? Public investment, uh, ensuring also lifting some people out of poverty through redistribution. Uh, So that's one thing. And the second thing is, you know, when you talk about trade, policymakers always have the feeling that you have losers and winners. But when you talk about public investment in a coordinated way or supporting your population, there are no losers. Everybody wins from that, which is why we believe that cooperation uh, is feasible. But how are you managing to get people to listen to you right now? I mean, the public mood and political trend seems to be towards inward-looking protectionism, some even nationalism, even among some major OECD countries. Countries are very integrated. You have the global value chain, like an iPhone. You know, the manufacturing of an iPhone starts in Asia and, and in the US. You look at Airbus in Europe, it goes through the UK, Spain, Germany, France. So they are trade powerful trade linkages. They're also powerful financial linkages. So when 
as we used to say, even at the OECD, when the US sneezes, the rest of the world may catch a cold. So everybody has interest that global growth continues for all. It's, it's a common public good. And that's how you get people to sit at the same table. Look at the G20. Uh, unlike what's G20 on, is uh, the G20 is the group of the 20th richest economy of the world and they represent the largest uh, sizable share of global GDP some people were quite pessimistic that they could come to an agreement on migration climate uh, financial safety net at the end of November in Argentina and yet they did so I'm hopeful that if need be we can sit together and move ahead how do you explain the U.S.'s strong, relatively strong performance? Do you think that's sustainable? So there are two things. I think the U.S. started the recovery following the financial crisis faster and with more momentum because they did the right policy at the time with the right sequencing, address financial issue, support the economy by cutting rates and by spending a bit more public money. And that was good. Now, there has been, again, some fiscal injection of public money last year in 2018 and this year, when the U.S. doesn't really need it because it's at the peak of the cycle. So it's boosted growth further. It risks, you know, sparkling some inflation. And after 2019, when this injection of public money disappears, then we're at risk to see growth actually slowing a little more sharply. Um, so we're in a cyclical, difficult situation in the U.S. because part of the excess growth, if you wish, has been artificially created. And what about your own country, France? Uh, we're seeing some government reforms leading to some f- quite violent clashes on the streets. Is that déjà vu or is this something different this time? I think what's interesting is it. this is not a French issue per se. We have gone since the late 80s through a wave of globalization and digitalization. And overall, it has been good. There's no doubt about that. A third of the planet has been lifted out of poverty, which is magnificent. Uh, but at the same time, more locally, it has impacted some people in some sectors where work was displaced, for example, or where the skills were not required anymore. And collectively, I think we've made a mistake of not paying attention to that. And that's what we are seeing now. It's the cost of having left inequality developed uh, between, say, 85 and 95, and then stagnate afterwards. We also observed that redistribution has lowered. So we have not paid enough attention to the individual, and especially those who are the less well-off. And that's the big lesson for us as an advising body to policymaker. How can we help those people and make sure that everybody has the same opportunities and chances in life. But do you think globalization can change to become a little bit more locally oriented? I think policy can help a lot to ensure that the benefits of globalization are more equally spread throughout the population. That's to ensuring that everybody has the same access to good education, good health care, good housing, little pollution, public transport, public services. It's a matter of rebalancing the policy that we were putting in place. 
Turning to you, Laurence Boone, you took up your role as the OECD chief economist in, I think it was July 2018. It must be exciting, but any feelings of trepidation? Yeah, I'm super excited about the job. First, it's working for the general interest. Um, the OECD has been at the forefront of the lessons from the past two decades in caring and working to address inequalities of revenues and opportunities. The better policies for better lives is a super motivation. Second, the OECD staff is fabulous, coming from all member countries, hugely committed, bright, dynamic, innovative, striving to deliver policy recommendation that will actually enhance the welfare of people in the short and medium term. So I feel privileged and honored to support them to make the best of their work and promote it with policymakers and ensure that policymakers can actually also strive to get better life for the people. Of course, you already worked at the OCD, what, early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s? We even worked together, I think, in those days. Um, but uh, since that time, you spent uh, several years in the private sector as a, an economist, leading economist, chief economist as well. Has the OCD changed since that time? As I said, I think the OECD has gone a tremendous way from being very from being seen as a very liberal, mostly liberal institute to an institute that provides policy advice, which are a lot more balanced today between lifting growth, but ensuring that everybody benefits from it. Uh, and that I think the OECD has been really at one of the leaders in making this shift looking ahead. And this is helping us because we have been able to prepare a lot of the work that we, not all, but a lot of the work that we need to actually give better advice. And of course, the OECD is an international government organization and your experience in the private sector must bring some new insights. Hopefully. Um, so I... I think there are two things. One is the, the private sector taught me a very entrepreneurial spirit, but also the exigence of delivering. Uh, you know, it's great to have some ideas, but how do we make something concrete out of it? How do we serve our customers, our clients, and our clients today, our governments? So that's one thing, be concrete and try. There's never any harm in trying, we should do it. Second, as you know, I worked as an advisor to the former French president uh, so on the policymaking side. And I think this is invaluable to help identify their concern, strike the right balance between short-term and medium-term objectives, improve communication, avoid jargon, and also be ambitious in policy advice, but humble. They are elected. They talk to their people, their concern. We have to take that into account and design our recommendation to take care of the concerns they have about individuals. And finally, back to the future of the world economy. Do you have an optimistic message for our listeners for the year ahead? Will spring follow winter? <laughs> I think you put exactly the right question, the right spot. Taking a long-term view is a reason for optimism. Welfare has tremendously improved overall over the past decades with the third of the planet that's now, you know, nearly growing at the same pace with the same wealth as advanced economy. So that's super impressive. 
Climate concern is now central to our policy design, and the COP21 success should remind us that multilateral cooperation on long-term issues is possible. So we are navigating challenging waters. Some are suffering more than others, and we must help them. But overall, like Fukuyama said, I think the humanity continuously improves. And taking a longer-term view actually helps to be more optimistic and address those long-term challenges and the short-term one. Lawrence Boone, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Rory Clark. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. You can find more OECD Podcasts at soundcloud.com slash OECD, as well as at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and on a range of OECD platforms.